Our passage this morning is going to be from Amos, chapters 5 and 6, and we are going to read several verses kind of spaced out in those two chapters. So if you'd open to Amos 5, we're going to start reading in verse 12. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Verse 15. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Verse 23. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In chapter 6, verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've been reading in Amos the last several weeks, uh, primarily because we're in this historic moment of a, a new awareness, a reawareness of racial tension and racial violence in our country. And as we, as an entire nation, and, and really to some degree the whole world, is trying to reconcile ourselves to what's happening. I wanted to spend time reading what many of the great civil rights leaders were reading. And this certainly, uh, the book of Amos is one of those. And so there are three themes in Amos, at least three themes in Amos, that are captured in this group of verses. And I want us to address those three this morning. And they are a call to empathy, a call to action, and a call to justice. So first, let's look at empathy. Now, empathy is a word that is having, uh, itself is having a moment right now. It's become very much a buzzword in corporate America and sort of socially. I mean, I've heard this word probably more in the last two years than I've heard it my whole life. Uh, and that's okay. It's a good word. It's a word we should know. Uh, empathy basically means to understand how others feel and to show compassion in response. And Amos here, we'll start in, in chapter 6, and we're kind of look at it in reverse order. But Amos here is, he's... God is speaking through his prophet Amos and he's speaking to the people of Israel and they are in a time of luxury and privilege and many of the Israelites who, who are enjoying that luxury and privilege are doing so at the expense of and with a failure to recognize the plight of others in their midst who are suffering and who are poor and who are marginalized. And so as Amos writes here, he brings a warning about that lack of empathy. Look at uh, chapter 6 verse 4. He says, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and cattle from the stall and who are singing idle songs and playing instruments, enjoying comfort, anointing themselves with the finest of oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. In other words, he's saying you're enjoying a luxuriant lifestyle. You're enjoying a position of privilege and your heart is not broken for the ruin of your brother. He uses Joseph here. What do we think of when we, we hear the word, the, the name Joseph? We think of Joseph who was assaulted and left to die and then ended up falsely imprisoned and maligned. This is who Joseph is. 
And Amos is saying, listen, you cannot just enjoy the comfort of life and not allow your heart to be broken over the ruin of your brother. And I think a lot of us overestimate our own empathy. It's easy to, it's easy to recognize lack of empathy in others. It's hard to recognize it in ourselves. So if you would, let's just do a little experiment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to mention a few years over the last couple of decades. And I just want you to think about what's the worst thing that happened in that year. Maybe not to you personally, but collectively. What's the worst thing that happened broadly in these years? Okay, so if I say 2001, what's the worst thing that happened that year? Most of us probably are going to think of the terrorist attacks on 9-11, right? Almost 3,000 people died on that horrific day. It was tragic. And it broke our heart then. And for, for many of us, if not all of us, it continues to break our heart today. Now, what if I said 2005? What's the worst thing that happened in 2005? Certainly, if you're from Houston or lived in the Gulf Coast area, the worst thing that happened in 2005 probably, as you recall, is Hurricane Harvey. Or, or sorry, Hurricane Katrina, rather. So Hurricane Katrina... Uh, hits New Orleans and almost 2,000 people die. And it was horrific to watch people stranded on rooftops and first responders couldn't reach them. And it was just absolutely tragic. Now, what if I said 2008? What's the worst thing that happened in 2008? Many of us, if not most of us, would say that the worst thing in 2008 was the Great Recession, right? The financial crisis. Commercial banks, investment banks start going out of business. The economy turns upside down. And many Americans lost a third of their accumulated wealth as the stock market plummeted. It was a very difficult time and it had repercussions for years. But what if I said the phrase Cyclone Nargis? Cyclone, do, I mean, do you even remember Cyclone Nargis? Most of us feel like we've probably never heard of Cyclone Nargis. In May of 2008, Cyclone Nargis hit Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, and killed 138,373 people. Just a few months before the stock market crashes in the United States, 138,000 people are killed in Myanmar, and most of us don't have any recollection of it whatsoever. It's not even the top 10 worst things for us that happened in 2008. And so when we're tempted to think that maybe we are people of deep empathy, we remember, in fact, that a tragedy strikes Southeast Asia in a country that most of us have not been to. Most of us don't know any Burmese people. And so our hearts don't break for what happened in Cyclone Nargis. Now, this passage is not about natural disasters. It's not about racial violence or racial tension in America in the 21st century. And I'm, I'm not going to try to make it about that. But what we seek to do in reading the scriptures and doing the work that theologians called exegeting the scriptures, what we try to do is we try to understand the original meaning of the passage, how the original hearers have understood this. And then we take the enduring truths and components of that meaning and we apply it to our modern context and say, how does this apply to me today? What does it teach me about God? What does it teach me about people? And how do I apply this in my own situation? And I think we would be absolutely missing it if we don't recognize that the enduring truths that, that God reveals through his prophet Amos have immense implication for us today in the way that we live as global citizens and neighbors. What Amos teaches us is that religiosity without empathy is a travesty. Religiosity without empathy is a travesty. It misrepresents who God is and it actually invites his discipline and judgment rather than his pleasure. Look at chapter 5, verse 18. Again, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, a seemingly righteous desire. He says, woe to you. 521, I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Take away from me the noise of your songs. 
God says, you get together ostensibly to worship me, to express your love for me. And because your heart is not broken over the ruin of Joseph, I hate what you're doing. I want nothing to do with it. Take it away from me. If our religious activities are devoid of empathy to others suffering, if our religious activities are not marked by our efforts to create a more gentle and just society, then those religious activities invite God's judgment and discipline and not his pleasure. Now there's a problem for us, and that is that we are wired to some degree to feel empathy for those like us. And it's harder to feel empathy for those who are not like us. In fact, I, I saw uh, someone interviewed, they, this person professed to be a, what they called a conservative Christian, and the question was asked of them, well, what does it mean then for you to love your neighbor, which the Bible teaches about? And they responded, I think when the Bible says we should love our neighbor, what that means is I should love people who are like me. Now that is a horrible understanding of what the Bible teaches about loving our neighbor, but it is an entirely accurate representation about the neurology in our minds that's wired to feel empathy for people who are like us. And I've experienced this and so have you. So for instance, 10 and a half years ago, our first son was born. And I remember my, my wife had just a tremendously difficult labor. And we were about 27 hours into a 32-hour ordeal. And I'm standing at her bedside holding her hand. And she is so exhausted and so riddled with pain that she can't even remain conscious. And so she would be wrenched with the, the pains of contraction. She would scream and fight through it. And as soon as that contraction passed... I would watch the, her eyes roll back in her head and she would pass out and lose consciousness where she would remain unconscious until the next contraction came in. And we did this over and over and over. It was the most excruciating experience of my life and I felt no physical pain. I wasn't the one having the baby and yet it was the worst experience of my life. Why? Because there's no one in the world closer to me than my wife. Her pain is my pain. And I felt that naturally. I didn't have to try to feel that. I couldn't help but feel that. Now, what if my neighbor down the street goes through a difficult labor. And she and her husband are telling us about the story and, hey, let me tell you about the labor. I mean, I'm going to listen and, and I'm going to try to sympathize, but I'm not going to feel her pain. Why? Because she's not as close to me as my wife is. Because it's easy to feel empathy for those who are close to us. It's hard for those who are far from us. And so, actually, modern science has shown this. And they've actually found that even in medical care, there's what's called an empathy bias. And so... Black people who go in to receive medical care from predominantly white medical establishments actually get prescribed less pain management than white people do because white people presume that black people are feeling less pain than they really are. Scientists have shown that if I as a white man am shown a picture of a white person being burned, my parasympathetic nervous system is going to respond acutely, meaning my pupils are going to dilate, I'm going to start to sweat, my heart rate is going to start to race, and I'm going to respond more acutely if I see a picture of a white person being burned than if I see a black person being burned because our minds are wired and conditioned to feel empathy for those who are like us. But that's not the extent of the biblical call to empathy, not just to care for those who are like us. And so we're in this time where, where as a nation, we're listening, for, for many of us, particularly those who are white, are listening to experiences that we can't fully understand and are experiences that are not exactly like our experience. And so I read a book a few years ago by a, name, uh, by a guy named Michael Eric Dyson. He wrote a book called Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America. Listen to what Michael Eric Dyson says about his experience being a black man in America. Now, by the way, he's not speaking for all black people. And in fact, I've read other books from black people 
who, who don't characterize it the same way that Dyson does, right? So this isn't a monolithic tale, but listen to what he says from his experience that represents the majority of black experience in America. Listen to the words. He says, Beloved, to be black in America is to live in terror. The terror is fast. It is glimpsed in cops giving chase to black men and shooting them in their backs without cause. Or their terror is slow. It chips like lead paint on a tenement wall or flows like contaminated water through corroded pipes that poison black bodies. It is slow, like genocide inside prison walls where folk who should not be there perish. Now that's Dyson's account. That's his testimony. That's his experience. But what I find happening, which, which I think is interesting, is that um, some white folks, and not just white folks, I, I've actually heard uh, black folks respond to this too, but, but particularly interesting to me is, is white folks who have, who have really no context to, to firsthand understand this, and their first reaction to hearing this testimony is to become argumentative and defensive and try to undermine and undercut his argument. They say, no, 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 that's an exaggeration. That's not really happening. Police aren't really more brutal to black people than white people. Or if they are, the problem really is that black people aren't obeying what cops are asking to do. If you would just obey, you're not going to get hurt. Or let's say, you know what the real problem is? <clears throat> it's not the way that white culture interacts with black culture or 400 years of, of, you know, of, of racial uh, tension and violence. The real problem is black on black crime. And so why aren't we talking about that? Now listen, each of those things might have merit as part of a discussion. I'm not saying that any of those things is necessarily wrong. And, and we can have conversation about each of those things. But what's interesting to me is that if that's, if, if I as a white man, if that's my first response to your testimony, what it shows is I, I'm not exhibiting any, any empathy for your experience, right? And so I just wonder, as we think about and filter our cultural conversation, what is it revealing about our own heart, about our own idols? And, and, and I guess the other thing is, I, I've been in this pulpit several times and I've been up here and I've talked about the orphan crisis. I've talked about a crisis in foster care. I've talked about human trafficking. And never have I heard any white people say, hey, you know what? That's exaggerated. You know, the real problem we need to be talking about is how these foster kids are acting out. That's the real problem. Or you know what? I think you're exaggerating the problem of human trafficking, right? I mean, no one says that. And so what is it about this issue that's causing a posture of defensiveness? I think what it does for us this morning is it calls us particularly those of us who are white, into a place of recognizing that we need greater empathy. And empathy can be developed. It is a learned skill. And so I just want to get eminently practical here real quick and just talk about four ways that we can become more empathic as people of God. All right, so here's number one. The first way to get more empathy is to repent. Just repent. Repent of our indifference to the suffering of others. Repent of the reality that when I think about 2008, what I think about is the way it impacted me financially, not about 140,000 people who died in Myanmar. Repent of our indifference. Repent biblically means to change our minds so fundamentally that it actually changes our direction, that we turn around and start walking the other way. So that's number one. Number two, get proximate to others' experience. Get close to other people's experience. Brian Stevenson, who wrote the book Just Mercy, I'm sure many of you have read the book or seen the movie, Here's what he says. He says, we must get proximate to the suffering and understand the nuanced experiences of those who suffer from and experience inequality. He believes that if we are willing to get closer to people who are suffering, we will be empowered to change the world. And this idea of get proximate to suffering is a way to develop empathy. This is a self-validating concept in Christianity because was it not the way that Jesus Christ displayed his empathy by getting near us 
the son of God running the heavens and coming down and taking on flesh to live and suffer amongst us, is there not a better example of what it means to get proximate to suffering? Number three, to develop more empathy, we need to read widely. We need to read widely. We need to access authors and artists who don't look like us or think like us. I, I just the last few weeks, I've been reflecting on some of the most important books that I've read over the last 20 years. And I identified 60 books that have been tremendously helpful for me in developing a broader perspective and a deeper level of empathy. Now you may say, hey, I don't actually think you're a very empathic person. And I would say my wife and kids would probably agree with you at times. So, but, but here's the deal. Um, these, think about what I would be like if I hadn't accessed this, right? These have been tremendously helpful in the way that God has developed me into a person of greater empathy. Now, some of these books I agree with wholeheartedly, and I think they do a fantastic job of articulating biblical theology. Some of these books I don't agree with at all, and I think that they're actually perpendicular to biblical theology. And that's okay. The reason I'm reading these books is because I want to broaden my perspective. I want to understand better what other people's experience of the world is like so that I can have deeper empathy for them. Because the Bible doesn't say only have empathy in those and love those who are like you. That's not what the Bible says. And so if I'm going to understand and love people who aren't like me, I have, to, I have to get into their world. And so reading widely can help with that. Which means... We can't fixate on one news source, all right? So if all you read is Fox News, or if all you read is MSNBC, or all you read is the New York Times, or all you read is the Wall Street Journal, you do not have a realistic understanding of the world because that's only one perspective. And so we have to read widely. We can't fixate within our own echo chamber. Everybody suffers from confirmation bias, which means we want to seek out data that validates our our beliefs that we already hold, and we want to reject data that contradicts our beliefs. And so we have to fight against this. I'm going to show you a, uh, there's a graph here. Uh, this, this nonprofit puts out this kind of objectivity matrix for news media, and they rank pretty much every major, major media outlet in the world. And I would say maybe just once a year, just do a sanity check on yourself. Just take a look at the news sources that you access and look at where they are. And look, if you, want to, if you just want to watch Fox News all day, Okay, but recognize what it is, right? It is a, it is a right-leaning, non-objective view of the world. And so if you're going to watch that, you need to counterbalance it with something else too. And just maybe take a look and just try to keep your news in the top of the matrix, right? Fact-based and as objective as possible. James Sire wrote a book in 1990 called Discipleship of the Mind. And I read this in college. And I don't remember anything else about the book except one chapter. He talks about how important it is for Christians to be intentional and careful and thoughtful about how we access and interact news because it is going to shape our worldview. And so we have to read widely if we want to develop greater empathy. And then the last thing I'll mention here is to pursue diverse friendships. Pursue friendships with people who aren't like you, who don't come from the same town, don't have the same color of skin, don't have the same worldview, and ask good questions. Listen to what they have to say, and then imagine what it would be like to embody their experience based on what they've shared. Uh, Deleon mentioned earlier that we, uh, on the Woods Edge website, we've got these uh, roundtables called Real Talk. Go take a look at those. I've watched all of them, and they're fantastic. It's uh, two white folks, three black folks talking about their experiences and perception in race issues in America. And just go listen and, and learn from what they have to say. And maybe try to the degree that you can to walk in someone else's shoes. And so this might mean visiting a neighborhood you've not been to before, or a friend who has a, a local restaurant that you've not been to before, or, or visiting someone else's church or mosque or temple or community center or playground or whatever to try to enter into their world and see what it looks like to walk around in their shoes. God will use these things to deepen our empathy. And so God, through his prophet Amos, calls us to be people of empathy. He also calls us to be people of action. 
So look at chapter 5, verse 15. He says, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. Establish, that is an action verb. It creates an affirmative application for the people of God to do something. Establish justice. God calls his people out of their malaise, away from their luxuriant lifestyles and lethargy, into a place of sincere empathy that produces action. And this isn't just an Amos, right? We see this in the New Testament as well. Look at 1 John 3, 17. Very famous passage. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them. Pity is a different word than empathy, but it's related, right? What he's saying is, look, you're, if Amos says, you're not brokenhearted over the ruin of Joseph, John says, if you see someone in material need and you don't have pity, if you don't have empathy for their plight, how can the love of God be in you? Yeah. Dear children, let us not love with words and speech, but what? In actions and in truth. God calls us to be people of action. And then I'm going to suggest that what this passage is calling us to is to establish not just justice, but what I think is better understood as systemic justice. Now, I know, that, I know, I know as soon as I said that phrase, some people are getting defensive. I know that this is a, a code word and it's triggering some folks, right? So let me, just, let, me just, let me just present to you why I think this passage is actually calling for systemic justice. So I'm going to give you two main reasons. So first reason, look at, back at Amos 5.15. He says, establish justice in the gate. Well, what does it mean to establish justice in the gate? So we, I have a gate in my backyard, right? It's about four feet tall. It's wrought iron and it hangs on old rusty hinges. So that's my picture of a gate. Is that going to help me understand this passage? It's not. So what I have to do, first of all, is I have to go back to the original context and do a little homework to figure out what would original hearers of Amos' sermon, what would they understand when they hear in the gate? All right, so in the ancient Near East, uh, 750 BC, about when Amos wrote this in the northern part of the kingdom of Israel, folks would have recognized that the gate isn't just a, a, a slat on, on hinges, but rather it talks about the, the front of a city and then, and then the space. It's almost like, like a vestibule. It's like the whole area here at Wood's Edge, if you're out in the common area, that would be sort of the gate. And the function of the gate was, was multifaceted, but let me tell you four things that happened there. One, it was the seat of politics. This is where public assemblies happened. This is where civic matters were aired out. It was also the seat for civil legal proceedings. So litigation happened in the gate. And negotiation and signing of contracts happened in the gate. Judicial hearings happened there. It was also criminal justice. And so uh, executions took place in the gate. And then finally, it was the seat of commerce. And so this is where the marketplace existed. So when he says establish justice in the gate, what he's saying is that justice has to permeate and effuse every major area of human endeavor and enterprise. This isn't just talking about interpersonal justice. Now, the Bible does call us to interpersonal justice. Hey, what if I go to the store and I buy $15 worth of goods and I hand over a 20 and I get $7 back? I just got too much back. What should I do? I should give up the $2, right? I don't know if I did that math right. I hope so. <laughs> That'd be okay, good. Uh, so yes, the Bible calls us to that, but not in this passage. This passage is calling us to systemic justice, saying that justice has to be woven into and solidified in our systems and structures so that our schools and churches and legislative bodies and businesses and hospitals and banks, all of that has to be permeated with justice. So that's the first reason I think that's what this passage says. Now let me give you the second reason. Look, look at uh, chapter 5, verse 24. By the way, 
this verse is what Martin Luther King Jr. quotes in his famous I Have a Dream speech in 1963 in Washington, D.C. Um, you should go listen, go listen to that speech today and listen to him read this. It is far better than I read it. But okay, so here's 524. It says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The imagery that God chooses here points to perpetual effect rather than episodic impact. Do you see that? The language that God communicates this idea in points to perpetual effect. The prophet isn't calling for justice in a particular case or fairness with respect to a particular person who is wrong. He's calling for justice to be true, so prevalent that it, that it gushes continually within every endeavor and enterprise in the human experience. So when you look at a waterfall, you don't spot a particular molecule of water and then watch it fall. You couldn't if you wanted to because the volume and rate of water is so significant that your senses are overwhelmed. You couldn't watch that one droplet if you tried. That episode of hydrogen and oxygen bonding and coalescing together is simply subsumed by the collective effect of the force of the waterfall. That's what God is saying about justice and righteousness. Justice should be the steady state of our polity and our civic life. It should be systemic. So if that's right, what will that mean for us? Well, it's, look, it's going to mean a lot of things. And this is going to have to be fleshed out um, in all sorts of, of areas within, within our, our uh, public life. Let me just mention a few things quickly. First, I just want to recognize that so much good has been done over the, over the last 60 years. We are in a better place today as a country than we were in 1960. And we're in a much better place today than we were in 1860. And so over the last 200 years, God has brought about immense grace and healing and progress in our society, and yet it's not done. Because we've not achieved the vision that Amos lays out for us. And so what will it continue to look like? It'll look like criminal justice reform. It'll look like talking about what we criminalize and how we sentence and how we provide access to legal counsel to folks who can't afford attorneys. It's, it's going to mean change in hiring practices that account for the power of implicit bias. It's going to mean ensuring that people of color have unencumbered access to the polls, which Again, we're in a way better place now than we were in 1960, and we're not where we need to be. It means that we're going to need to address lending policies to ensure access to capital for black business owners and other people of color. Liquidity right now does not flow with equal opportunity to all kinds of business owners, and we need to, we need to fix that. That is not a system that's permeated by justice, and so we need to address it. I'm about to say something that I might not, I don't know. If, there's no one here, really, so I'm just talking to a camera. But if there are people here, this might be kind of the part of the riot. But I'm just going to mention one other thing, okay? Christ, Christianity Today ran an editorial about four or five weeks ago. And it was really by the editorial board. And they talked about how this is a time that the church needs to recognize restitution in the United States. Restitution for the historic uh, subjugation of black people and the enduring legacy of that subjugation and the effects it has today. And one of the things they talk about uh, are what's happening in Atlanta. Uh, say they, they say they're called Zacchaeus funds. And apparently the idea is that there are some white people who are taking capital and putting it into a trust to be overseen by black brothers and sisters who are going to distribute that money for things like educational grants and small business loans and so forth. Now look, that's, we're not talking about government reparations there, although that's a conversation that is also happening, that the church needs to be equipped to engage in with empathy. But what they're saying is, look, even just personally, maybe that's what it looks like for you, right? Michael Eric Dyson talks about this in his book, Tears We Cannot Stop as well. And so there are actually components of personal reparations that, that I've embraced and embodied. Look, 
I, I'm, this is not going to fix a system. This is not going to have immense effect in society, but it is, it is a part of my repentance. Look, I don't need to repent. I, I didn't own slaves. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't shooting fire hoses at people in 1963. So that's not what I need to repent of. What I need to repent of is my indifference and lack of empathy for the suffering of others. Right? To the degree that I have not engaged, I need to repent for that. And this is part of my repentance, right? What might it be for you? I want to close just by resituating us in our passage and just reminding us of, of what this call is that Amos has given us. Okay, so Amos was speaking in the prophetic voice. He called Israel to repentance and empathy and justice. And in return, those with power and privilege killed him for it. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is before the Sanhedrin. And he quotes from Amos 5, the same passage that we just read, Stephen quotes from that chapter, and he calls that tribunal to repentance and empathy and justice. And in return, the people with power and privilege killed him for it. In 1837, Elijah Parrish Lovejoy, the white Presbyterian minister and abolitionist, spoke in the prophetic tradition of Amos about the inherent dignity and worth of black men and women. He called for repentance and empathy and justice. And in return, those with power and privilege in the form of a pro-slavery mob killed him for it. Jesus, speaking in the prophetic tradition of Amos, addressed the Pharisees and Pontius Pilate, and he called for repentance and faith and empathy and justice, and in return, those with power and privilege killed him for it. So listen, this, this message has never been well received, which, you know, maybe this wasn't very smart of me to choose this passage. It didn't end well for most people who passed it on, right? Today, in the prophetic voice of Amos, it continues to call to us, and God is calling for at least three things. Repentance for our sin of indifference, empathy for those who are hurting and action to institute justice in our communities. That's what God is calling us to do this morning. This passage isn't about Black Lives Matter. This passage is not about uh, racial tension or violence in the United States, just like it's not about gender equity or domestic violence or mental illness or the 400,000 American children in foster care today or the 5 million people in Sub-Saharan Africa who are facing potential famine, or the 138,000 people who died in Myanmar in 2008 that we all forgot about. It's not about any of those things, and yet this passage has direct relevance to each of those things. And for each of those spheres, each of those issues, each of those occurrences, we as the church are called to have empathy and to act to implement justice to redress those things and to prevent those kinds of things from happening, to alleviate suffering to the degree that we can. If we don't allow our religious observance to be marked by empathy and punctuated by action towards justice, it invites God's judgment and discipline, not his pleasure. And we want to be those who live perpetually under God's pleasure. The church will one day have some role in judging the world. That's 1 Corinthians 6. But that day isn't today. Our role today is not to judge the world. Today, the role of the church is to suffer with, sacrifice for, and serve the world so that God would be honored by our actions and exalted in our lives, so that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be demonstrated and proclaimed, so that those who see it demonstrated and hear it proclaimed would glorify our Father in heaven. That's what we're called to. We don't do these things to earn the pleasure of God. We do these things because we receive the pleasure of God. In fact, we're reminded of this very truth by the way that Christ engaged us. He suffered with us. He sacrificed for us and he served us so that by faith in him alone, we might rest in the assurance of God's pleasure Amen. and that we might never have to experience his wrath. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you, God, that despite the seeds of racism that exist in every human heart, 
that by your grace, you actually can free us from that kind of bondage, that you can make us people of empathy, the kinds of people that you call us to be, the kinds of people that you demand for us to be, that God, by the power of your spirit, you can actually transform us and sanctify us so that we can live that way. And that we can be people who are known as a community of care and a community of justice, of people who don't just preach the word, but also demonstrate it in actions and in truth out of love for our neighbor. God, would you help us to become those kinds of people? Father, we ask for healing in our nation. We ask today that those who are suffering, that you would be near to them and that you would mobilize your church to come around them and care for them. God, would you today allow for each of us in in whatever way that we are suffering or in need or hurting, God, would you remind us of your perpetual kindness that is available in Jesus Christ. And when you lead our hearts to bow before you today to receive the good gift that you've given us in your son. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.